Thank you uh, to our guests for leading us in the time of worship. We appreciate that, the time of singing. Of course, the entire service, all of it is worship. Our greeting one another uh, as it's done to the Lord. Uh, as we read Scripture, hear Scripture read, and of course as we hear Scripture preached, uh, glory is given to the Lord in so far as what is preached matches what's on the page in front of you. Uh, so I have no authority. Uh, scripture is authoritative, right? So we say with the old reformer, sola scriptura, that's where the authority is. So we don't want you to come into church and go, preacher, tell me what it is, and then I'll figure it out. Uh, we want you to say, preacher, show me where it is in the text. And if that's what it says in the text, then uh, by God's grace, let's live it. So if you don't have a Bible, if you're not uh, armed with a Bible this morning, uh, you can slip your hand up and we'll bring you uh, one you can use. Uh, we use the English Standard Version. Um, it's nothing holy about that, but if you want to follow along in the words that I'll be reading, uh, you can use that. Or if you have an app, phone, iPad, tablet, or something like that, please please use those. And, uh, and of course, again, I, I invite you to pray for me, not just with me, as we seek to cover another whole book in one sermon. So we did Genesis last Sunday. This Sunday we'll do Exodus, which will prepare us for a series through Leviticus. Leviticus won't be one sermon, but it'll be more than one sermon. Um, and some of you may be thinking, huh, Leviticus, hmm, those are going to be some interesting Sundays. Uh, we, we want you to appreciate all of Scripture, as Paul told Timothy, all of Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. And maybe we haven't seen books like Leviticus as as profitable. We think maybe it's not that profitable. And the only time we ever try to bank through it is when we're committed to a read through the Bible in a year plan. And if you haven't already conked out by the end of Exodus, maybe you made it through Leviticus. Um, but we want you to see what's there for you to profit you. Um, but one way we wanted to do that is recap Genesis, recap Exodus, because the first five books of the Bible cohere, they go together. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy form the Torah, the law. So we want to see how it all kind of fits together. So I ask you to pray with me and for me. Father, in the next few moments as we look into this book, the book of Exodus, we pray that you would allow us to not only see what it says, but to see what it means for us and how, it, how you want us to respond to it. We need your grace in order to respond to it well. So Father, we pray that this would not just be another church service, that this would not be just an exercise, a religious exercise, where we just kind of go through some songs and we go through some scripture and we just, you know, just what's for lunch. God, we want to encounter you here, now. Would you do that through your word? May you have your way in us as a result. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Churches have a conversion problem. We, we don't know how to report them. We don't know how to count them. And so we, when we are fascinated by numbers, when we are fascinated by size, when we have denominations maybe pressing for reports and we know that we can 
make our church a little bit more well-known if the denomination sees that all these numbers. Sometimes churches make goals by saying, we're going to create these numbers. We're going to manufacture these numbers. This year, we're going to have this many baptisms. We're going to have this many conversions. And when denominations and churches start putting pressure in terms of numbers, we start messing with what conversion actually looks like. If somebody prays a prayer out loud that is written on a card, is that a conversion? Somebody signs up to be a member. Is that a conversion? So the pressure to have the, the numbers, whether it be denominational pressure or a pastor's pressure who wants to be like the next big church down the road or something like that, that puts pressure. Or maybe it's as a parent, you feel the pressure. And as soon as your child is able to speak, wait a minute, I think they can follow along the prayer if I just say it and they repeat it. Can they be two and a half years old and be converted? What is conversion? And you get the scary passages even in the New Testament, right? Where Jesus talks about that judgment day when all kinds of people are standing before him and he's separating sheep from goats. And you see goats going, why am I here? I'm, I'm over there. You weren't converted. Depart from me, I never knew you. Some of us put that in the car. Well, they knew Jesus, but after a while, he says, I never knew you. I knew you for a little while, and then you conked out. But I, I preached and I prophesied and I, I led worship. I, was, I taught Sunday school. Yeah, during that entire time, you were doing religion and I didn't know you. The church told you you were converted. You convinced yourself you were converted. You even got involved. But never during that time did I ever know you. Is that scary? What's conversion? Showing up to church? Conversion, rolling up your sleeves and getting involved and doing stuff at a church, is that conversion? How many of us respond when we're asked, do you know you're going to heaven? Are you sure? Are you sure you're going to heaven? We kind of backpedal like, ah, I mean, the Lord knows. That's the long answer. Do you know Jesus? Uh, Exodus might be a surprising place to go to for the answer but I think it's important to understand you don't have to wait to get to Matthew 22 to get the answer it is in Exodus so I want you to turn there even if it's your turn first time turning into a Bible you'll find it because it's the second book in the entire Bible the book of Exodus and some things might seem familiar because of Cecil B. DeMille or because of DreamWorks or something else some of that you have to forget because it's not biblical. Some of it they did pretty well. But you want to read it for yourself and see what God tells us here. The book of Exodus, as the name sounds, it's a book about an exit. It's a book about leaving. It's a book about coming out from underneath bondage. And that's a bondage that was promised in Genesis. God told Abraham, that this was going to happen. And so, uh, you remember at the end of uh, Genesis, we get that beautiful picture of the gospel where Joseph provides, in the midst of a famine, he provides uh, salvation to those who are starving. But by this point, Joseph is forgotten. Egypt just sees Israel growing and multiplying, and they want to uh, make sure that they don't take over, and so they turn them into slaves. So the book starts out, and Israel, as a people, are enslaved. They're in bondage. And that's the running theme throughout 
Exodus, and that's why I introduced it by saying, are you converted? Are you out of the bondage? Are you truly rescued? And so you get the first couple chapters um, where you get the setting in place. And then in chapter 2, you meet Moses, uh, how he came to be. He is adopted. Uh, he's, he's raised Egyptian by a daughter of Pharaoh. And then you get verse 11. I think we maybe don't pay enough attention to this episode in Moses' life. So chapter 2, verse 11, let's hang out here for a minute. And we'll see in a moment why this has everything to do with conversion, how everything to do with the question we began with. But one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Now, Hollywood will make you think Moses has to discover when he's older, oh, I'm, a, I'm Hebrew? No, he knew. He knew that already. And he sees one of his own people being beaten and he decides, I'm going to jump in and I'm going to be the rescuer. In fact, by the time you get to the book of Acts and you read chapter 7 and Stephen is about to get killed and Stephen is sermon. This is Stephen's text. And Stephen tells us in that sermon in Acts 7 that Moses knew exactly his identity, not only as a Hebrew, but as a rescuer. And he wants to jumpstart it. He wants to get it going. And he thinks by murdering this Egyptian, the Hebrews are going to go, here's our guy. Here's our guy. He's willing to kill the Egyptians, man. This guy does not care. He does not play. Backfires on him. Verse 12, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, now there's two Hebrews, these two of his bros, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. None of this, Moses, come on, why don't you just be one of us? They want to kill him. And the reason why Moses fled was because he wanted to be the rescuer, but he knows he can't do it. He, he can't do it actually. That's why he's got to hide the dude in the sand. He didn't stand up on top of the scaffolding and go, I'm the guy, let's go. No. He was afraid because people found out. So, and, and, you know, Stephen tells us he wanted to jumpstart this thing and get it going, but when you're reading the text, you're like, he couldn't really get it going, and he knew he couldn't get it going. He doesn't have the power to take on an entire uh, army of people. So now he's afraid. He runs away. He's about 40. Then in verse 16, uh, not verse 16, he, 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 he runs, the, he, the, the thing doesn't work, and then, yes, 16. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their flocks. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them. There's the theme again. He's the rescuer. He's stepping up to be the rescuer and watered their flock. When they came home to their father well, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds. And even drew water for us. So there's the theme again of delivering. 
That's kind of his mode. It's his MO. That's what he does. But at the same time, he can't do it. I want you to get down to verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. You see the emphasis? Up until this point, is Moses this, Moses that. Oops, he killed a guy. Oh, he tried to bury him. Oh, that didn't work. Oh, he goes over here, and he, now he's trying to deliver shepherd people. And, and then verses 23 to 25 provide a hinge. This story is going to change now. And the story is going to change because God heard the groans, and God is going to step in, and God is going to be the deliverer. Not Moses. As you read the entire rest of the book of Exodus, that is the theme hitting you over and over and over and over again. Moses can't do it. You can't do it. The people couldn't do it. God did it. That's the theme over and over and over again. Might it be that that is the obvious thing that we miss? When someone's asked, are you sure you're going to go to heaven? And we go, yeah, I think so. What you're doubting is God's ability to rescue. You still have too high a view of your participation in this thing. That was Moses' problem. Moses' problem was, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get this. It's not that he didn't believe in God. It wasn't that he's some you know, pagan or atheist. He believes in God and he understands that he has a role that God has given him. But he's trying to jumpstart the role. He's trying to do it the way he wants to do it. He wants to do it on his terms. And so he wants to bring God things down into his terms and make it work the way he sees fit. And it doesn't work until verse 23 when God steps in and God hears the cries of the people. And make no mistake, it's not because the people begged so hard. It's not because they prayed so long. It's not because they prayed a particular formula to get God to do it. God did it because he remembered the promise that he already gave in Genesis. He remembered the covenant that he made. And so the prayer was effective because God already said it. It's not like the prayer was effective because God hadn't thought of it and they prayed it and God's like, oh man, how's actually going to go for plan A, but this plan B sounds better. Thank you for, for praying that. That's really good. Let me rewrite the entire course of history now. He steps in because of his pre-planned orchestration of things saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He's not missing anything. He's not up there biting his nails. He's not scared like Moses. There's the contrast. God is the effective deliverer. He's the one that can get it done. He can deliver anyone from any bondage. This is, this is a bondage that is impossible to come out from underneath. He's going to get it done. That's the promise. Then you get the beautiful and, of course, well-known encounter with Moses and God on the mountain. God takes the form of, the angel of the Lord takes the form of a burning bush. It's a bush that's burning, but it won't finish burning. There's nothing quite strange about a bush that's burning, but it's really strange to see a bush that's burning, and then when you walk by it four hours later, 
There's no missing branches. There's no pile of ashes underneath it. It's burning like if it started burning two seconds ago. That's actually what catches Moses' attention, pretty observant dude. And so we drop down into chapter 3. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Oreb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to this great sight. Why the bush is not burned. Now, just really quick, I didn't even plan on saying this, but this is good. Fire is a theme throughout not only Exodus, but the Old Testament. Fire is a consuming fire. Fire burns. Fire is wrath. Even when it protects Israel from Egypt, it's that wrath toward Egypt. You cannot touch my people. He's a fiery, fearsome God. But here, there's that theme of it's consuming, it's burning, but it doesn't consume. His wrath is there, but his wrath doesn't wipe out. So there's a theme of the fact that a people should be wiped out, and they aren't, because he won't, even though he has the right to and the power to. How is this going to happen? How is this deliverance going to happen? Well, he's going to get Moses. Verse 3, and Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When Verse 4, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This is not a moment where God is a rosy-cheeked Santa Claus asking him to hop up on his lap and give me your request and I'll pull a present for you out of my big celestial bag. He's a fearsome God not to be trifled with. But he doesn't run either. He, he takes the invitation and he comes before him, albeit without his dirty sandals and he's on holy ground. He doesn't disrespect the bush by even looking at it. In verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have seen it. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. Notice he's, he's, what he's sneaking in there. I'm not just going to deliver you by defeating the Egyptians. I'm defeating everybody else. There will, not, there will be no stopping this deliverance. Not here, not there, not anywhere. In verse 9, And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Notice how many times he says, I see it. I know it. I'm over it. This isn't news to me. I see it, and I'm going to do something about it. Verse 10, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So you see in this paragraph, a lot of I'm this, I that, I see this happening, I've heard it, I'm going to come down in verse 8, I'm going to deliver them, but I'm going to use you to do it. And then verse 11, Moses isn't quite feeling it. Now, 40-year-old Moses would have been, let's go. 
because he or he was already ready to murder Egyptians and stuff. But 80-year-old Moses, he's like, mm, I don't know about that. And it's almost like God is going, yeah, I know. That's exactly where I need you. I couldn't use the 40-year-old Moses. He thought too highly of himself. He thought too highly of his involvement. I need the Moses that says, who am I to do it? Because now you're ready to recognize that's the wrong question. The wrong question to ask is, so who am I, Lord? The right question to ask is, who are you, Lord? Can you use a person like me? Can you? Are you so amazing that you can even use a person like me? God's like, that's exactly where I need you right now. That's exactly where I want you. Now you're ready to be used. You recognize that you're not the deliverer. I'm the deliverer. So who am I, verse 11, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Egypt? God said, he's so gracious. He's not like, you idiot, I'm doing it. Didn't I just say? But he said, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, now here's the correct question, who is God? The God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? That's Moses' roundabout way of going, okay, if who am I is the wrong question, then the right question is, who are you? Would you tell me? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And the, the way that name works, especially in the book of Exodus, is, no, you're not going to pigeonhole me by calling me the rock God. I'm the God of rocks. Or the ocean God. I'm not, I'm not Poseidon. I know that's a little anachronistic to this. But you know, I'm not, I'm not Ra. I'm not the God of the sun. I'm not the God of fertility. I'm, not, I'm all of it. And you will not use a name that pigeonholes me into one thing. I'm more powerful than that. I just am. I am. I'm being and I'm self-sufficient. I'm self-contingent. I'm dependent on nothing outside of myself. I don't need anything. But I am everything. So say that, Moses. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. In other words, I'm the promise-keeping God, and I made a promise, and I'm about to cash it in. Because I say so. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. How is God to be remembered? That He's everything. That He has done everything that is needed to rescue you from bondage. So when you walked in here this morning and I asked you, are you really converted? That's not preparation for bad news. That's preparation for good news. Because if you have any doubt that God has rescued you or can rescue you, then something else hasn't clicked yet. You might be thinking you're unrescuable. You might be thinking, well, he doesn't know the extent of my bondage. Really? Look at how late in the game God waits. He waits four generations of people praying and groaning and crying. Slaughter is happening. There's, there's no possible way for them to escape. And any glimmer of hope of this Moses dude, he's gone. <laughs> he ran away. It's completely hopeless. Now God's ready to act because he wants to show that I can take the hopeless situation and turn it into a hopeless situation because of who I am, not because of you. 
So this is his MO. This is how God wants to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me saying, verse 16, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. So he's going to do it. He tells them they will listen to your voice. Verse 20, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. So you know the story. Pharaoh in his cowardice and his fear might have let the Egyptians, the Israelites go right after he saw trouble. But, but God allows his heart to harden, hardens his heart, the text says. He doesn't take an innocent, fluffy heart that loves God and then turns it into a hardened heart. Pharaoh's heart is already hard, but God is, is making sure that his own cowardice doesn't mess up the plan. He wants to show himself through the plagues. And after he's done showing off, then I'm gonna, he's going to let you go. So God is going to roll up his sleeves and demonstrate that he saves them in grand fashion. He doesn't scarcely save them. He doesn't barely save them out of bondage. He saves them totally. He saves them, Period. And it is amazing, guys. You read the plagues. He's basically picking on their God. God is, he's, he's picking off their gods one by one. So, for instance, Ra, the son of, the God of the sun. This God who is the sun or the sun represents this God or this God is in charge of the sun shining on us. He just blacked it out. Where's Ra? You worship the God of the frog. Here's frogs. Those frogs are mine. I can make them go, I can make them come. They'll be in your showers, your bath, your sink, you brush your teeth, frogs are coming out of your mirrors. What else do you want? Like the god of bugs, here's lice. You worship the Nile River, I'll turn it to blood. It's like he's joking with them. The Nile is the blood of our God. Oh, is it? Here it is, blood. Now you can't drink. Pray to that Nile God so it could turn back to water. Oh, he can't, right. Because that God's a punk. I'm over all things. I am everything. I'm the great I am. And he's communicating that in grand fashion to the point he does uh, nine plagues in sets of three. He does three, three, and three. And then he finishes it with the tenth plague. The reason why that tenth plague is set apart is because that's the plague that's going to be remembered forever. This becomes the Passover where the angel of death comes and kills the firstborn. And the only way to escape that is for the, the family to huddle inside this covering, this house that is covered with the blood that's shed from an innocent animal. That covers them, and so they are passed over by that, and they were always going to commemorate that as a people. And then Jesus reinstitutes that into the Lord's Supper. So when we take communion, that broken bread and that cup, that's Passover. So this is to be remembered for all time. And that tenth plague is set apart because God is showing them that I'm not rescuing you because you are so rescuable. I'm not rescuing you because you have so much merit and you're so much better than the Egyptians. You'll die just like the Egyptians if you're not covered by a sacrifice. So that becomes very clear. Egypt is completely on their knees. Pharaoh loses his son. He's completely on his knees. And it's not like they just let them go. Another thing that's missed in the text is that they, uh, they plunder the Egyptians. The Egyptians want them to leave really bad. And they're, they're like knocking on the Egyptians' door. Hey, uh, 
I know our God just killed your firstborn and wiped out your vegetation, and because your vegetation is wiped out, your flocks are starving and dead, and we know you guys have been completely crumbled by our God, but can you give us money? The wilderness, you know, we don't know how long we're going to be out there, and we just need some cash. You know how they responded? Here's our gold. Here's the safe. Open up the safe. Just take, take our stuff and please get out of here. They left there rich. Why does the text give us that? I think the text gives us that because God doesn't scarcely rescue. He rescues in grand fashion above and beyond what could have ever been expected in this rescue mission. So what Exodus is trying to do is get you to a point where you trust completely in God's rescue plan. Where you recognize that you don't bring deliverance for yourself. God has to bring deliverance to you. And you don't question the deliverance. You see it. The deliverance is grand and amazing and effective for you. But if we stay stuck in 40-year-old Moses mode, like we got this, we won't get there. We'll always be on the other side of it. The book kind of takes a turn because you think the main emphasis is God rescuing them from external bondage, bondage that is happening to them from other people. But the other shoe drops and you find out actually the people need to be rescued from their own bondage that they do to themselves. So God doesn't just rescue them from an external bondage, He rescues them from an internal bondage. You see this as you move through chapters 13 through 17. God continues to persist in faithfulness toward his people, even though we're not faithful toward him. We're not going to cover all of this, but you can skim through it or read through it another time. But he takes them through the Red Sea. They complain. He brings them, uh, he, they, they need water. The water is bitter. He turns the bitter water into sweet water in chapter 15. You'd think they love that. You'd think that that'd be great. No, they're, they're a complaining people. They're a grumbling people. They don't have food, so he rains bread down from, man, uh, from heaven. That's the manna that he provides in verse 16. And I don't know if you, like when I was a kid, I thought of manna as probably stale bread. I mean, it's been on the ground. You've got to scrape it off a rock. Like, how tasty can it be? But it tells us it tasted like some combination of honey and, you know, it's, it's tasty. Complaining. They're thirsty again in chapter 17, and so God brings water out of a rock. Then they have to face the Amalekites in chapter 17. God defeats them. So it's like, you need water? Bring it from a rock. You need food? Rain it from heaven. You need quail? <laughs> Drop them in your lap. You don't even need a shotgun. They're just like fluttering into your lap. Break my neck, please. Like, let's have, let's have dinner. It's, God gives them every single thing they need. They don't have to hunt for it or work for it. It's just automatic bread on the floor. Oops, the Amalekites, what about them? Wipes them up. So chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, you see this back and forth of God's faithfulness, and they don't like it. God's faithfulness, and they complain. God's faithfulness, and they grumble. God's faithful, and they're faithless. And so he needs to rescue them from their own bondage to themselves. They're out of Egypt, but they're still stuck in rebellion mode. And they even go so far as to say it'd be better off back in Egypt. We'd rather be enslaved there than have to wander around wondering what's next. We felt more autonomous then. We felt more in charge of things then. Here it's like we don't know where the water is going to come from next. They don't want to believe that God's going to bring it from out of nowhere. They want to see the evidence. Show me. Where's the water at? 
Let's go back to Egypt. At least we knew where the water was. See, that's their thinking. They don't want to depend on God. They just want to be on their own. And they'd rather be independent in slavery than dependent on Him free. What we recognize in the book of Exodus is that they're still enslaved, even though they're out of Egypt. Being out of Egypt is a symbol. It's an analogy. But the deeper, the deeper problem is their enslavement to sin. They're enslaved to rebelliousness no matter how gracious God is. So now God demonstrates to them that the living the rescued life can't be a life where you just constantly grumble and do whatever you want. The rescued life is a life that lives a holy life. You, you live according to my standards. And so he introduces the law. But we don't get that, guys, until chapter 20. We get 19 chapters of this back and forth and this relationship being established, then he gives them the law. He does not give them the law first and then say, okay, if you can live up to this law, now let's figure out a relationship. He institutes the relationship first and then gives them the law. So what comes first, conversion or obedience? Conversion comes first. If you're still stuck in a mode where you're like, okay, I'll convert, I'll give my life to Christ, but let me fix my life first. You're still stuck. You'll always be stuck. If you come to a point where you say, okay, I can't, live, I can't fix my life. I can, make, I can make it look better. I can put filters on my life to make it seem a little bit better. I can try to convince myself that I can drop a few habits and do some other nice things, but I'm not really rescuing. I can't rescue myself internally from this bondage. I always, the, the wheel, the steering wheel is always going to head into the median. You know, I'm always going to crash. I, I can't realign myself. I can't do it. I need God to do it. I can't obey. I need God to change my life. Well, now you're in line with this, the order in which Scripture reveals it. And so requirements don't precede rescue. Rescue precedes requirements. But the requirements are important because rescue doesn't mean, oh, I can do whatever I want. No, rescue and then requirements. You are now free to follow God and you were enslaved in your inability to follow God. So we get the law on chapter 20. And when you read through that table, uh, what's called the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, see that God is basically saying, here's how you're going to honor me. You're going to honor me by loving me. And if you really love me, you'll love neighbor. So the first table of the laws are Godward commandments, and then the second table of the law are horizontal commandments. You're going to love me, not worship anything else. You're not going to do graven images. You're going to keep the Sabbath. You're not going to take my name in vain. And then the result of that is you're going to love neighbor. You're not going to covet. You're not going to bear false witness. You're not going to murder. You're going to love neighbor if you actually love me. So the vertical produces the horizontal. So then you get into the, the, the 20s in the book of Exodus. And you see in chapter 24, you turn there, this is very important. You see in chapter 24, we won't read a lot of this. But you see this, uh, the, the confirmation of God's covenant relationship with his people. And it has everything to do with blood. So verse 6, Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of the people, and then he said, all that the Lord has spoken he will do, and we will be obedient 
Will we? Yes, you will, because a covenant is already in place to produce that obedience. Then he takes the blood that he had put in the basin. So he takes half the blood and puts it on the altar, representing the relationship Godward. And then he takes the blood that he put in the basin in verse 8, and he throws it on the people. He's just splattering blood all over them. Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Aren't you glad we get our little sippy cups for communion now? Instead of a big basin of blood, and I'm just like, shh, shh, you're covered, right? But it was a dirty, smelly, visceral reminder of what it takes to have this relationship. Something's got to die or we will die. And the only reason why we have life and we're able to obey and be in a relationship with God is because something else has died. Of course, that reminds them of the same principle that is taught in the Passover, which pushes toward Jesus Christ himself. Very disappointingly, very disappointingly, you get to chapter 32. And after all of this, after all their failures, God is faithful to them. And Moses goes up to the mountain. And what do they do when Moses takes too long? They take all of the gold that they knocked on those doors for and that the Egyptians opened up their safes for. They took all those earrings and all those necklaces and bracelets and anklets and golden chokers and medallions and whatever else they had. And they took it all and they made a big calf out of gold. And instead of worshiping the I am, they worship something graven, an image that they make. And, and you don't even get out of Exodus before they can't keep the first two commandments. They worship something else and we're going to create a graven image. What does God do? Does He wipe them out and say, I'm just going to use the Jebusites now? Does He completely kill them and say, let me just have the Midianites now? He's faithful to His covenant even when we're not faithful to the covenant. Now, of course, repentance is required. Not everybody survived that. He had to draw a line in the sand, literally, and said, anyone who's going to follow Yahweh, step on this side of the sand. And everyone who didn't, they got wiped out. But that goes to show that God is trying to, He's, he's curating His people. It is not okay for a church to just hand out memberships. Like, you want in? You want in? As long as we've got hot bodies in the chair, we can report you know, to other people. My pastor friends, I could tell them, oh, we got this many people now. Do you have that many people? Does God have that many people? God is always drawing lines in the sand. And the line in the sand is not how well do you perform. The line in the sand is do you have faith in this covenant God that he's the rescuer, not you? And they said, you know what? We've just come to the realization that we'd rather worship a calf that we made out of gold. And you might look at that and go, man, that is so dumb. Why would, you, why would you exchange God for a golden calf? Isn't that what everyone does? Doesn't the book of Romans open up with that? God's wrath is revealed against mankind because God, man exchanges God worship for other stupid stuff. God doesn't actively work in our lives. We will exchange Him for anything. But God doesn't cast out the repentant. The ones that say, we're, we're sorry, wow, we, we're real idiots. He's like, come on. come on. This relationship is still intact. And your blood doesn't have to be spilled. Because I've provided a priest. So the book ends with this emphasis on the priesthood. The book ends with this intercession that Moses has. And God says, I'm going to destroy this people. And Moses says, oh, please don't, I'm interceding. And God doesn't even argue. It's beautiful. God goes, all right. 
He just wanted Moses to pray it. God knew he wasn't going to destroy them. But he wanted to demonstrate that it's on the backs of an intercessory prayer that he saved his people. And of course, we learn in the New Testament that intercessory prayer is Jesus' prayer, that he's the ultimate high priest, he's the go-between, he's the mediator, and you are saved because Jesus Christ provides it. Last observation. In chapters 25 to 30, you've got a lot of temple rules and regulations and you need to build a tabernacle like this and the tabernacle needs to look like that, but they don't do it yet. Then you have the golden calf incident where they utterly fail. And the question, if you were reading it for the first time, you go, okay, is God just going to forget the tabernacle where he's supposed to dwell with his people? Forget the dwelling with his people. Forget the relationship. It's off. They'd rather worship a golden calf. No, he takes a remnant out of that. The people that are sincere, they repent. He rescues them. And then chapters 35 to 40 is almost a verbatim repeat of chapters 25 to 30, the tabernacle again. One of the only differences is in 25 to 30, the language is they were going to do this. They're supposed to do that. And then in verse 35 to 40, they did do this. They did do that. So 25 to 30, they're going to do a temple. They're going to do a tabernacle. And then the golden calf incident. And then you get another five chapters of they did do the tabernacle. In other words, their rebellious sin didn't mess up God's plan for them. Is that you? Are you saying in your head, well, Lucas doesn't know this thing that I've done. I don't need to know it. Look at all the verses we've got. I see it. I know it. I heard it. Jesus Christ's blood is enough to cover whatever has happened. Wherever you've been, whatever you've done. His grace is that big. And so those long chapters of the detail of the tabernacle, you're trying to get through it and you're reading, you know. God is establishing a relationship. That relationship is put in jeopardy in the golden calf and then he establishes the relationship again. It's a Moses' own version of the Mark and Sandwich that we talked about when we went through Mark. You get the first piece of bread, you get the thing in the middle and the other piece. And the thing in the middle is they sinned and because of an intercessory prayer, that sin didn't keep them away from God. So, are you converted? Maybe you said a prayer. Maybe it was at a campfire. Maybe it was at a church where you walked down an aisle, prayed something with somebody. Maybe it was at your bedside, you prayed something with grandma. You can pray along to a prayer. You can say another person's prayer out loud. That's not the point. They're not abracadabra words, you know, that just make things happen. The point is, what were you believing in that prayer? What are you clinging to in that prayer? If there's a part of you that still clings to what you are able to do, if there's a part of you that still thinks you can deliver yourself, you can fix yourself, you're probably still on the out. But if you come to a place of reckoning with your complete inability to change yourself, that even if you're willing, even if you want to, you're, you're still going to mess things up. You say, God, I need you to take over. I need you to be the one who establishes this covenant. I need you to be the one that keeps this covenant. Because if you don't, I'll just fall off. God says, yeah. My covenant does that. My covenant holds you. And it keeps you. Because it's not based on performance. It's based on grace. Anytime you have an opportunity to explain the gospel to anyone. You don't want to make it sound like God doesn't care what we do. Of course He cares what we do. He is a consuming fire. You don't want to say, oh, I don't want them to feel guilty. Yes, you do. They probably already feel guilty if they have any sensibility about them at all. But what do you do with that guilt? That's the good news. 
The good news is that guilt doesn't exist. The good news is, yeah, guilt exists. We should feel guilty. We are condemned. But there is a way out. There is an exodus here. The only way to get out is not to get out yourself. It's not for you to rise up and be the deliverer. It's for you to hand things over to the great I Am who is able to conquer even your own past. He's gracious. I invite the worship team to come up uh, as I pray. Father, as we close in the song, we ask that you would remind us again, just work it down into our hearts, that our relationship with you is based solely on your grace, your mercy, and help us to leave here not doubting our relationship with you, knowing that it is secured because we have placed our faith in the provision that you've given us in Jesus Christ, that he is the great high priest, that he is the great sacrifice. He's the one who's provided that lifeblood spilt out so that we can have life. He's the one that's taken death for us so that we can conquer death. He's the go-between so that we can be in a relationship with you, Father God. We ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would not just remind us of these truths, but embed them. So that anytime we're asked if we're going to heaven, we can answer with sureness. Not sureness based on our performance, but sureness based on Christ's performance on our behalf. Remind us of these things, even as we sing. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing together with us?